0: The Dickheads are presented in color.
1: Hey Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from all over the country to your brain hole. The Dickheads podcast is here to talk about one of the most important people to Philip K. Dick's life. Anthony Boucher, Tony Boucher. Well, that wasn't his real name. His real name was A.P. White. That's what he went by to most people. But he wrote under the name Tony Boucher, and he edited um, many magazines uh, in the field. And I have a whole panel here to talk about Tony Boucher. Um, If you're watching on YouTube, starting up in the left-hand corner is Gary K. Wolf. Gary, returning to the Dickheads podcast, can you tell him who you are, what you do, And why I invited you here.
0: Um, Why you invited me here is entirely up to you. I'm not taking any responsibility. I'm a critic. I'm a reviewer for Locus Magazine and occasionally for the Chicago Tribune. And I've written a number of um, nonfiction books about science fiction, edited four volumes now for the Library of America for science fiction of the 1950s and 1960s, and some other things here and there.
1: Right. And below you, the man who does Tony Boucher's job today Gordon Von Gelder. Gordon, I mean, I kind of already said one of the main reasons why I brought you, but tell them your background with science fiction and how you got to the, to the point where you're doing Tony Boucher's job.
2: Actually, I'm not doing his job anymore. but I, oh, I did, okay. for, you did for a long time. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was a book editor at St. Martin's Press in the late 80s and through most of the 90s. And then what moved from there to editing fantasy and science fiction and stepping into Boucher's old shoes. Like I said, I did that for 18 years. And at some point, I also bought the magazine and became the publisher. Uh, and I'm still doing that. So I'm essentially the guy who was Tony's bo- uh, boss for the <laughs> nine years that he edited the magazine. That's me, my job now. All
1: right. And so that gives you a very unique position And uh, to talk about Tony Boucher. And I'm very excited to have you here. Also in a very unique position, the man who wrote the introduction to one of Tony Bowser's most famous books, Dr. F. Paul Wilson. Paul, you are the second New York Times bestselling author we have had on the Dickheads podcast after Carrie Vaughn. You wrote the Repairman Jack series and the Adversary Cycle, which are two of my favorite book series of all time. But tell us your history with classic pulp science fiction.
3: Well... I was a I was a science fiction fan since I could read, and but my first exposure to Boucher, who I called Boucher, back then because French was my high school language and uh, it looked like Boucher to me. Um, but my first exposure to him was uh, "They Bite," uh, a short story in of all things, Zachary's Midnight Snacks, which was a Valentine a horror anthology. And I just love the story because that idea of seeing something out of the corner of your eye uh, and never being able to quite catch it uh, was really, uh, really striking to me. And so I, I kept my eye out for him. And the next one I saw was Snowbug, which was about a, a guy who conjures up an inch tall demon who's got a very bad attitude. And uh, it was a delightful story. They were both from unknown worlds. And um, I I just that's when I searched out his his far and away anthology and um, which is a full a full dose of of voucher.
1: Right. Well, we're going to talk about the influence of his short stories, too, because they bite is one of many short stories where he pre like he wrote about ideas that became pretty commonplace later on, uh, like backwards messaging and records and things like that. And he was, like, far ahead of time on many things. Uh, But we'll get to that. So we're going to start with talking about his early life. And so – and, guys, jump in whenever you feel the need. Um, Yeah, uh, Anthony – is it Parker White, I believe is his name?
2: Um, William Anthony Parker Parker White.
1: Yeah. And um, so he was really a Tony. um, But uh, Tony Boucher was one of many – pseudonyms or names that he wrote under including H H Holmes, which is a very hilarious pen name, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um I don't think he had as many pen names as Barry Maltzberg, but um yeah, I don't think anyone did. Um but he had a lot. There were, there were plenty who had more pen names than Malzberg. Mm. Oh really? Yeah. Well he's the one that I know the most. I love that uh Ellison quote that um Maltzberg was not only one of the geniuses of science fiction, but probably <laughs> eight of the 12, you know. Um, <laughs> I always love that quote. But Bowser wrote under many names, but his um, upbringing was in California, and he grew up in Berkeley. And uh, he started taking writing seriously at a time when he was uh, living in Southern California. He and his wife, uh, newly married, new parents Um, had moved to Los Angeles. I'm I'm not sure what job he moved there for, but I know it was for work, but that was a really important time because that's when he joined the Minyana Literary Society with
2: Mm -hmm.
1: a lot of the big voices in science fiction. They had a writer's group that would hang out at uh, Laurel Canyon where uh, Robert Heinlein would host Uh, Writers and they would talk about stories pitch ideas critique each other and we're talking some big names in the field Um, Not just Robert Heinlein we had L. Ron Hubbard uh, Harry Kuttner uh, CL Moore um, On and on and on the list is is Yeah, and um, so But this, of course, inspired his novel Rocket to the Morgue, which we'll get to in a bit. But um, let's see who else. Oh, uh, DeCamp was there, Uh, L. Ron Hubbard, although um, Tony Boucher said later that he never actually met Hubbard. Um, Lee Brackett, Jack Williamson um, were all listed as members of the Manyaya Literary Society. So I'm wondering if you guys would want to just tell me what impact this this group of writers had on on all of you, um, and what you think this impact had on Tony Boucher? Uh, Sorry, with Gary.
0: Um, I never really thought of that group as a literary group. It struck me as, as being what I've read about it that's described somewhat in uh, Alec Nebula Lee's book Astounding. Uh, it, it was kind of a social support group, I, I, I thought, because you certainly couldn't see, I can't see much exchange of the style or theme between, say, Heinlein and Lee Brackett. Uh, she mm-hmm. was clearly doing, she, she was writing these fantastic, uh, heroic pulp stories, um, and Heinlein was writing his own thing. So I, my sense of that group was it was more of a social group than a literary movement.
1: Well, and I think that support network was was very important to these early yeah. groups, because especially at this time, science fiction was not considered literature it was entirely in the pulpits. Mm-hmm. right and then you have tony Boucher who was also writing uh, at that time in mystery and starting to focus in mystery too so um yeah i'm sorry i'm getting a little drag on my video guys um on my end but i think it's going to record fine with the voices it should be fine um, Gordon, what, what, what do you think the impact of this literary society had on the development of science fiction?
2: Um, <clears throat> I, I could be glib and say the biggest impact it had was Ray Bradbury, <laughs> the product of the California writing scene, and especially of the influence of uh, Lee Bracken and Ed, Ed Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And they sort, sort of fostered him into becoming the, the Ray Bradbury we know now. Um, but I think Gary's right that it was more of a support group than a literary movement. And it was kind of all over the place. You know, Cutner and Moore were doing stuff that was very different from what Heinlein was doing. And mm-hmm. They'd all get together and say, what kind of stuff is Campbell? Oh no, it'd be pre-Campbell. Is F. Orland Tremaine buying now? Mm-hmm. And you know, figure out what the market was like. And if I remember correctly, <laughs> Boucher sold a poem, I think a poem to Weird Tales when he was about 15 or 16, but then he, he dropped out of science fiction. He thought it was way too down market and pulpy and wasn't interested <laughs> in it. And then when he got involved with the Manana Society, he started reading it again and saying, hey, it's come a long way. This is really good stuff. And he started he oh. rediscovered the field.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: At least that's yeah. my I understand how so it went. So the Manana Society had a big effect on Voucher in that regard. hmm yeah, and um, Paul, I know
1: you're – I believe you're a really huge Harry Cutner fan, right? Um, I I think I recall that about you. Um, but Very I,
3: right. yeah. I, I actually uh, – Neil Gaiman and I and Piers Waters got all his Hogman stories together into a, a collection for the first time, which are – there's six of them, and they're wild, wild stories. Uh, and I think they were done
0: as pageant. but Louis pageant, yeah. Yeah
1: yeah well and and certainly the um the adjacent authors like uh the rabbit holes and the the little tangents that we go on and the other authors are are definitely welcome on this podcast um but harry kunder is i have to admit um harry kunder and cl moore were authors that in the last year i've been trying to learn more about cl moore particularly because she's from my home state of indiana and went to indiana university where my father taught and uh in that future tradition I definitely wanted to learn more about her and um, it, it her pioneer her work was is just as pioneering as, as anyone else like in this field at that time and was just a, a very thoughtful writer too. And I think I'm I you know coming from what Gordon said I, I do believe that Boucher like was so inspired to make them do the magazine of fantasy and science fiction mostly from this contact and seeing the exciting things that were happening. And he very specifically wanted to create a venue for intelligent science fiction that had less of the kind of Superman thing going on with Campbell's work. Um, you know, I just wanted to back to the Manana
3: society. Uh, Campbell was a, a big influence on them. He took over astounding in 37 <laughs> and, um, and he's a character an off-stage character in Rocket to the Morgue. There is a, an editor named uh, Don Stewart, right? mm-hmm. you know, the uh, his pseudonym, and um, uh, this Don Stewart is the editor of Surprising Stories and another one called Worlds Apart, which becomes you know astounding, and it becomes <laughs> unknown world. So um, he was at that point. This, this is, I guess, this was written in 1940. Um, he was already, you know, changing science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and one of his influences to get involved in science fiction was his co-founder of the magazine in fancy and science fiction, um, uh, Mick McComas, is right? Is that, again, me in pronunciation with name, but Mick, they met in Berkeley in the 30s, and Mick was the one who Boucher would have these debates about, you know, Mick was the one that was already hip to science fiction um, getting better. So Mick was the person that Tony came back to when he decided that he wanted to do the the magazine. And they spent a good portion of that period from 1945 or 40 to 45, trying to establish the magazine, which um, we'll get to in a little bit. But at the time, the only two serious magazines that were publishing science fiction that, or that Tony considered serious were Campbell's Astounding and, and Horace Gold's Galaxy. Those were the only two that, that he respected at least. The Galaxy. Yeah, I know there were others, but according to Boucher um, and Eureka Years, that those were the magazines that he respected, that he looked up to. At least those are the two that he that he pointed to.
2: And he. I think Galaxy started right around the same time as FNSF did, in 49. If maybe Galaxy was 50. They were very close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um... well believe not, <laughs> Boucher and McComas, their original vision was that the magazine was going to be Ellery Queen's magazine of fantasy. Mm-hmm. And they went to Lee and, Dan- and Dana, the, the, co- you know, the cousins who write as Ellery Queen and asked them if they'd support it. And Dan, I said, actually, I think Manfred Lee was behind it. And Dan, I said, I don't know that science fiction stuff. I don't read it. and I don't think we should put our name on it. But we'll introduce you to Larry Spivak and Joe Furman, the guys who run Mercury, (laughs) and and talk to them. And that's really how the magazine got born.
0: Mm -hmm. And the first issue was just called the Magazine of Fantasy, I think.
2: Right. Exactly, and um, the, yeah,
1: they de- definitely sold it with that. They also sold it that they were going to be able to get writers like Raymond Chandler
2: right.
1: um, and different writers who wrote often for Ellery, Ellery Queen to write for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and that was one of the promises that they kind of made in the process. And
2: um, the book... They, they did, you know, if, if you check, there's one story by Raymond Chandler And it's really not all that good. And Chandler basically didn't have what it took to write science fiction. And after that one story, which I think came out in 52, um, ever after that, he was constantly bad mouthing the science fiction genre. (laughs) Right. And we'll come back to the, to the roots
1: of the magazine, but I want to talk about Rock to the Morgue because I feel like, um, and I have the brand new edition here. Um, and uh, and we're so lucky to have the guy who wrote the introduction for it with us. But *Rocket to the Morgue, I think, um, is so important to, I think, the people that listen to this podcast as to, like, it, it introduces the genre. I think it's really important to note that Tony Boucher in his afterword said that, hey, you know, um, no one outside of Pulps were really reading science fiction. So with this book, he wasn't just... Um, telling a mystery, but he was introducing the American public, or the wider readership, to the idea of science fiction. Paul, why don't you tell us the story? How did you get into um, the position of, of writing this introduction um, for, for the book? And tell us about your process with that. Because you hadn't read Rocket to the Morn, right, before, before you were asked? No. Um, I've yeah, known Otto
3: for, Otto Penzler, for, forever and um and i did write a bibliomystery for him you know i've got my foot in a number of genres and um but he knows i'm basically a weird science fiction type of guy and he just said you know i'm, I'm reprinting rocket to the morgue and i think you'd be perfect for the introduction i said what's rocket to the morgue <laughs> and um he sent me a copy and you know i i didn't i wasn't sure why i was reading this i mean i i know Anthony Boucher, was he had done Snowbug and They Bite and stuff like that. Um, but this was a mystery. And then all of a sudden, he drops the name Don Stewart as an editor. And then all of a sudden, you know, the antennae went up, and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then I started recognizing, uh, it, it, was, it became a Roman Romanoclef, and I, I just started recognizing these figures, and, and I even figured out that, um, who w- was uh, representing um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard? So, uh, and, and Robert A. Heinlein. I don't know all that about him, but I had recently read that astounding uh, book, all about Astounding Magazine, and that really um, put a lot of things into perspective. So, after you read that, and then you read *Rocket to the Moon*, you know, all of a sudden. The uh, pieces start clicking together. Um, but it, it was really his second novel as H.H. Holmes. The first one was Nine Times Nine or something like that, I'm not sure. Um, and there's this character, Sister Ursula, who carries over into Rocket to the Moor, but really doesn't have much of a, a place in the story. She's sort of an adjunct character who makes comments and, and things like that. Um, it's a locked-room mystery, which I tend to love. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got to say, the locked-room mystery isn't all that great. Um, I've read a lot better ones. (laughs) Um, But it's still – that's why you go and and grab other science fiction fans by the collar and say, you've got to read this. You've got to read this book. Um, And you have to (laughs) – I hate to say it, but you have to grab older science fiction fans because the science fiction fans—I don't think they would recognize anybody. They—they—they they, they wouldn't get, you know, what what was really going on with this money society.
1: Well, and that's one of the reasons why we do this podcast. I think is because we want to be able to teach people about the history of the genre and. Um, you know, I do think things like Astounding are, are great. Um, we've obviously had Alec on the podcast twice, and and I think Astounding is great as a history, but I think it's so fun to see it in in, in a story, you know, to see these characters um, be characters, you know.
3: And, and it's by someone who knew them, you know, who hung out and drank with them.
1: He even put okay. himself in it. there's an Anthony uh,
3: Boucher character.
1: <laughs> in- yeah, I'm sure when he was writing his H.H. H. Holmes, he didn't think that at the time that his name, it was a big deal putting his name in there, but at the meta level, but um, yeah, I mean, and and there's so much commentary on the genre in this book too. And I I want to highlight um, like a couple of those that um, he talks about the root within 20 pages of, rocks DeMore, the more he talks about the root of the genre and i love this quote like the detective story science fiction can be traced back to dim and ancient origins also like the detective story it blossoms in the 19th century in the form in which we know it now edgar Allan poe was nearly as influential in one field as the other but the true poe of science fiction and the wilkie collins too was jules verne but this is a history lesson <laughs> um you know, the genre mixed into, to a mystery. And it's, it's very neat.
3: Um, well, I, he's obviously a guy who loves the genre. Yeah. mean, he, he actually, he's, he seems to have genuine love for most of the writers, not the D. Vance Wimpole, who is L. Ron Hubbard, who, uh, who is quite a cad and a bounder in life and in um, Rockets of the More.
1: Right. And, and to which he said that he just never happened to be in the same space. As Hubbard at these meetings, so his um, what's really cool is that you know that his take on Hubbard is all from stories <laughs> that he heard um, probably while drinking with everybody and uh, having a good oh, time. Well, cool. he them.
3: owed money to.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, so yeah, and I, th- I think um, his love for the genre is is, is very clear. He also wrote the book under the name A.J. Holmes, which uh, not necessarily, if you're not a history buff, you might not know, um, was the name of America's first serial killer. Um, does anyone know why he <laughs> chose to write books under the, under this name? I, I couldn't find it, it was any here. here.
2: It was just, he had a, a fascination for serial killers and true crime. And in fact, he edited a true crime magazine for about a year. Hmm. And I think he just loved this the kind of inside joke that was going on there.
0: And it was much more of an inside joke back then.
2: We're um we're there were there one history channel
1: T V shows about it and yeah. And I mean, think a really Holmes good episode S- of Supernatural. S- <laughs> what was that, Paul? Wasn't H. H. Holmes
0: a pseudonym too? Herman Mudget. And and Boucher wrote under the name Herman Mudget as well. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, and so I I think that's a really clever and funny thing that was going on with him there. One of my favorite lines that I highlighted out of Rack to the Morgue was on page 58 of the the new edition. And um, Austin Carter, who is the character based on Robert Heinlein says, um, and that is the trouble with his stuff. It's too damn galactic science fiction can be interesting only so long as you preserve the human frame of reference. And I thought that was a really neat line because um, he's really giving a philosophy uh, that he would later come to apply to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which was maintaining the human frame of reference and not being just flat out space opera. Um, But uh, it's interesting. Uh, Who do you think was most at this time, in the genre presenting that human frame of reference, because I think a lot of the stuff was more galactic and space opera ish at the time. Who do you think were the pioneers at this time that voucher was, was calling on, um, in that moment, Gary, do you, do you have an yeah, idea? Yeah,
0: my, my immediate answer is Theodore Sturgeon, uh, who was always an anomaly in, in Campbell's, uh, stable yep. writing extremely humanistic fiction. And, uh, I think some of the fiction was riskier than, than Campbell knew it was, uh, but, but I think he stands out like a sore thumb. Bradbury didn't get into the Campbell circle at all. So, uh, so as far as I'm concerned, the great humanist of the late 30s and throughout the 40s was, uh, was, was Sturgeon. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and uh, I, 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 just, I see so much of what Boucher ended up doing just in that one line, even though it comes out of Heinlein's mouth Via the the Carter character, um, I, I I just I, I think that's a really great part um, of that. We also know that this novel on uh, within also mentions the science fiction conventions. Specifically, it mentions science fiction conventions and and specifically mentions the Denver convention, which is the one where the Futurians from New York City, Don Wolheim, Asma, blish all first met the Minyana. Writers and so, I think it's such an important and cool thing that the mm-hmm. conventions got their due there. I, I wonder what you guys think about about those early conventions and and what it says
0: to to Boucher's development
1: to Anyone? <laughs>
0: Sorry. Did he, did he attend those early conventions? I don't even know.
1: Yeah, I don't know if there there are so much stories, it, it seems to me that he had a had a clue. Let me look at the actual mention.
2: Well, yeah, he talks about.
1: He talks about science fiction fans being highly organized. They had an annual world convention. The last one was in Denver, and um, he does talk about them coming to or them organizing ones in California. So I'm pretty sure he just went to the ones in California. But I do think that a Denver convention, the fact that he mentions it, is very important because that was where the East and West coasts for the first time really started communicating and hanging out. And kind of viewing what what each other was doing, um,
3: but there, no, there's no email and there was no uh, Facebook and mm-hmm. none, of the, none, of the, none of them ever knew what anybody looked like. Um, and you had to write a letter and you had to stick it in the mail, um, or you had to write a letter. And you, you would mm-hmm. sometimes they communicate through the, uh, the magazine letter columns, or or that's where they got to know each other's names. Mm-hmm. And that's where they set up these clubs, uh, like First Fandom and, and the Futurians. Uh, they, they, they met through uh, letter columns.
0: The very slow internet, as one person described it recently.
2: <laughs> I think very it even slow. went deeper than that. If you go back to the Eureka years, one of the things that comes through is that Boucher felt the, their greatest achievement was being the first national U.S. fiction magazine to come out of the West Coast. Prior to to FNSF, every magazine had to come out of New York, basically, or the East Coast, you know, because of of all the difficulties. You know, you wanted to make it in writing, you moved to New York. You know, you'd slide your manuscripts under the door of the editor. Uh, It really was a breakthrough for Boucher and McComas to build up, you know, an entire body of West Coast writers, um, you know, there in Berkeley in the Bay Area. Uh, and make it work. You know, I'll tell you a story Ed Furman told me that's from the early 60s. (laughs) After Boucher's time, you know, he was replaced by, um, first by Bob Mills and then by Abram Davidson. Abram started editing the magazine from this little town in Mexico somewhere (laughs) that had one phone for the entire town. And there was one issue where the mail wasn't reliable and the proofs didn't get from Mexico to um, Connecticut or New York, where they were publishing the magazine. So Avram and Grania had to go and hog with one phone in town for an hour so that Avram could actually read in the corrections (laughs) that get made for the issue. So we take it for granted now that you can send a PDF across the country in three seconds, but running a magazine out of the West Coast in 1950 was an achievement. Do you know what that phone call must have cost? Yeah, I, I can imagine. <laughs> in you, 1950, You could have called the month. entire town in Mexico for that.
1: <laughs> oh, that is cool. Well, and I think it also gave the West Coast progressive vibe that the genre needed as well, too, because when we interviewed Lisa Yazik of the, the uh, editor of The Future is Female, she talked very much about how it was well-known from the, the, the women writers at the time that if, if Campbell rejected you, that you were much more likely to get an open mind from Boucher and McComas. And that, um, they were, they were already known at, at the very early stages for being more progressive and, and you didn't have to hide your gender when, when you were, um, sending in submissions. Um, which sometimes you had to with Campbell. I mean, there's that famous argument that Judith Merrill and Campbell had where she challenged him to, uh, or he challenged her to write a a story that wasn't about a wife. Right. (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, Judith Merrill was already publishing widely with, with other, with, with other magazines at the time. So, um, yeah, so we already talked about him making himself uh, a, a character. I, I have like a few things, a last couple things about Rock to the Morgue, and we'll get more general. Um, besides the fact that, you know, he told, you know, like Paul said, the locked room mystery isn't necessarily the strongest aspect of Rock to the Morgue, but it's there. Um, and so if you're interested in the story for the locked room mystery, um, but the mystery is tied to the character, the the literary estate, and the idea of the literary estate of of an author who had a valuable property, which also teaches the reader something about how literary estate works, which Mm -hmm. not everybody does know. Um, But on a meta level, he's he's commenting on the personalities of important figures of the history of the genre. So he's teaching history as well. Um, He's telling a great story and introducing the genre. So... I think what's underrated a lot of times is that this book is a work of genius because it works on four levels, right? Um, On all these different levels. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's a good thing that it's back in print, but also should be required reading, not just for the mystery genre, because the mystery genre uh, readers, writers, authors can learn something about layering these themes and context. But the the history of the genre it should be important to science fiction scholarship. And I'm wondering, and I want everybody's opinion, starting with Gary, do you think Rocket to the Morgue should be required reading for scholarship in the field of science
0: fiction? To be honest, probably not. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting. There's an interesting irony about it. It came out, what, what year was it? 42? Um, 41. 41. 41. And it was published by whom? Duel Remember? Sloan and Pierce. Duel Sloan and Pierce, it My point is this that. Um, it was a hardcover release, I know that. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, and that it was very popular. I guess it was reprinted several times in, in the Dell paperback. But the irony was that when the novel appeared des- describing science fiction and science fiction writers in the manner that you just mentioned, none of those science fiction writers themselves could have gotten a hardback novel contract. So a novel about science fiction is more successful than science fiction itself was in
1: 1941. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that um, Boucher said that in his afterword um, just a few years later, you know, uh-huh. that, that he knew he was introducing the world – to to science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. He had an understanding of that. Um, But uh, Gordon, how do you feel? Like, do do you think that this should be taught?
2: Um, Well, I'm not convinced there are many books that are required reading at all anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Uh,
1: I am a firm believer in that, but I know not everybody does. Like, I feel like, um, I, I feel like there's essentials or books that at least people who, um, teach the genre, like your your D. Harlan Wilsons, your Lisa Yazicks, your you know people who um, are professors in the genre, for example, um, is more kind of what I'm thinking. But um, and I know most of them probably have read it, but uh, you know, um, but it's it's just to me, I I feel like it should be shelved. Like like when I was thinking about where to put this in my library my first thought was to put it on my shelf of science science fiction, nonfiction. Um, because I, frankly, I don't have a lot of locked room mysteries in my collection, but I feel like it should be shelved there.
2: Um, Paul, what's actually a subgenre nowadays of novels set at science, mysteries set at science fiction conventions. There's um, Sharon McCrum's Bimbos of the Deaf Sun*, and William Marshall wrote one called Sci-Fi. Mm-hmm. And, I just it Well, Barry Malzberg wrote on Gathering the Hall of the Planets, I, I think under the O'Donnell pseudonym. And I'm sure there's another one or
0: two I'm forgetting. So well, Asimov did, well, Asimov did the ABA, which I guess Correct. is close.
1: Well, and uh, uh, Nick Mamatas just recently did a modern one called uh, I Am Providence that um, takes place at um, a Lovecraft convention and is, um, is a, a brutal. An absolutely savage takedown of some of the uh, Lovecraft scholars. Um, I highly recommend uh, recommend that. Um, uh, in in fact, there's the, it, that book uh, caused quite a stir in that community. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there is the modern tradition that is carrying that on. That's it's interesting. I didn't know there were that many titles that did that.
0: Um, and more recently, uh, I'm going
1: to read them all now.
0: <laughs> more recently, there's a novel by Paul Farge called The Night Ocean, yes. which is ostensibly about the secret sex life of Lovecraft, but really uh, involves the entire fan community. I mean, uh, the, 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 the Walheim is in it, the original science fiction convention is in it, Heinlein shows up, I think, briefly. Uh, one of the differences between now and, and 1941 is that if you write a novel with historical characters, you just simply use their actual names. Right. Uh, yeah. And so... Hubbard shows up as L. Ron Hubbard in at least a couple of recent novels. I think the, who wrote the Chinatown death town, the Chinatown death oh, something. Yeah. Yes. I know what you're saying. Paul Malmont. Is that it? Paul, yeah. Yeah. Paul yeah. Malmont.
3: Malmont. Yeah. And yeah. Brooklyn, I believe. Yeah. He's a, he's a good guy.
0: Right. He's a good writer. It was, a, it, was it was a fun story. But when I think uh, Hubbard showed up in that, he was just Hubbard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and now it is history. I mean, um, just make uh, sure they're dead. That's <laughs> yeah, <what? laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. I, I may honestly be playing around with an outline for a novel about the Futurians, but you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, this, uh, yeah, I mean, this question now posed to the guy who wrote the introduction, Doc, uh, uh, Paul, what do you think? Of, um, where does this, where should this book be shelved?
3: Oh, I mean I mean, it, it's definitely for the mystery people, but I, I really think, uh, I'd love to see science fiction even, even people who want to be science fiction writers especially, I mean there's one thing in there where the Heinlein character talks about protecting his brand, and he, ha- he has a sort of a series and he does that under one name and then things outside that that series, he does under another name. And if one of them gets rejected and he goes to the low-end market, he does it under a third name. So he's always he's protecting these brands all the way around. And this is – don't forget, this was written in 1940. Yeah. You know, th- this was being done back then.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's weird when, when an author has uh, a work that takes off under under a pseudonym and then they get stuck with it. You're, you're um, Dallas mayor being Jack Ketchum for his whole life or Nick Cutter, you know, being like modern examples, right? Uh,
2: where... West, Westlake complained that Richard Stark outsold Donald Westlake, but didn't he actually kill off Donald Westlake in one of his Richard Stark novels? <laughs>
1: Yes he did, which uh i'm pretty sure was the inspiration for the dark half too yeah. but uh, but uh yeah, yeah, it's funny when that happens with the pseudonyms but um but yeah i yeah, I think uh Paul, you're right, i think um there are so many lessons to be learned for 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 the science fiction um writer as well as the mystery writer here but uh you know. I'm obviously the one that's gonna die on this hill that I think uh, um that people should uh that people who are scholars who read the nonfiction of the genre should should read uh Rock to the Moore. you know, there's
3: also the, he is dropping names and you know, he, he has he has this guy writing the Captain Comet space operas. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's obviously, you know, Captain Future. And it's, um, there, there's a character in there called, named Binder. Um, so there were the Binder brothers who, who were writing science fiction. Um, and I think the agent in there, I, some people, you know, M. Halstead Finn, and everybody, he specializes in, in science fiction. A lot of people said it was Julius Schwartz, but Julius was, was East Coast. And Forey Ackerman was was an agent out there, and he was definitely L.A. and he was part of the L.A. Science Fiction community. So I think that the agent Finn is, is is Ackerman. But you know, that's one of the funs, the fun things about it, um, is is trying to figure you know figure these out.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I I agree with you. I think it's Forrest Ackerman, um, and I have seen that that there is a lot of debate out there on it. Like you. Your uh, disagreement with Wikipedia, um, Paul, uh, caused uh, a, a stir on some of the message boards that I saw talking about Rocket to the Morgue, um, but uh, I agree with you. I, I do think Finn uh, is for um, Ackerman. It makes more sense. Um, so let's let's just do a little bit more on Boucher's fiction at the time, and then we'll get into the magazine. Um, uh friend of the podcast, uh, journalist, Mark Conlon, who's, uh, who's on our show all the time, wanted me to make sure to mention the fact that, that voucher wrote a story in weird tales about an opera record being played backwards that summoned, uh, demons and that he did this in the forties long before there were trials for Judas priests, um, and black Sabbath for, for supposedly their records being played backwards. um, and Paul, you brought up um, they bite, which had a concept that later got used in Doctor. Who, which is the uh, monsters that can only move when you're not looking. Um, Bowger was really ahead of his time, had these really creative and interesting ideas as a writer. Um, I wonder how everyone feels that his impact as a writer versus his impact as an editor. Um, what do you think? Going around to everybody, what do you think was his biggest impact as a writer, Gary?
0: Well, I mean, he had uh, one classic story, The Quest for St. Aquin, I think, ended up in this uh, first anthology of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Um, and it's a very good story. It's, it's a story that probably a modern reader would immediately glom on to what the more or less surprise ending is. But he was dealing with religious themes in a far future society that uh, later... Uh, you'd find in much the same way handled in a in a canonical for Leibowitz. And I think the other thing he did, which was um, uh, unusual for the time, was he was very interested in wordplay and in puns and in, um, uh, in, in, in alterations of language. There's a story, one of my favorite stories of his is called Barrier, which is a kind of anti-fascist story uh, about a society which seals itself off from the rest of the world, not physically, but, temporally. In other words, they've created barriers so that no time travelers can come in and mess up their perfect society. Um, and then uh, partly through the story, he realize that this perfect society may have evolved from the victory of uh, the Nazis in World War II. Um, but part of this dystopia that he uh, describes is a regularization of speech. Um, so, so all the speech reform, the spelling reform movements, he had a lot of fun making fun of that. And I always thought that looking at some of his fiction and some of these little short joke-like things, Frederick Brown-like uh, short, short stories that he wrote, uh, that you could, you could see an editor's mind at work. You could see somebody absolutely fascinated with what you can do with language and with names. One of his funniest stories, uh, what's it called? The Greatest Tertian, uh, which is uh, nothing but a far future take on um, various names of contemporary uh or, or, classic figures, you know, Shakespeare. And of course, these aliens are trying to figure out who the greatest Tertian was of all, and it turns out to be somebody named Shirk Ohms. And a lot of the fun in that is simply is unpacking his wordplay with with, with the names of, uh, of famous figures.
1: Gordon, what do you think about his impact as a writer versus an editor?
2: <laughs> I'm in the school that thinks his his influence as an editor was much more important than his work, as, his influence as a writer. That's true. I would have, I second what Gary says about St. Aquin being his most highly regarded story. Mm. I think he did a lot of other interesting, you know, The Complete Werewolf is a good story. Um, I'm not that familiar with his radio work from the 30s when he did all the, um, the Ellery Queen and Sherlock Holmes stuff up for the radio. So I, I don't know a lot about its influence, but he was, he was a real Renaissance guy you know, he had a regular opera show on, uh, KPFA for decades. Yeah. you know, He had his fingers in a lot of different things all the time. Um, you know, and that included writing and some of the writing, you know, made an impact and some didn't, but I, I can't help thinking his impact as an editor for that decade when he did FNS and his impact as a critic for decades mm-hmm. is, you know, outshines most of his fiction just in terms of impact not in terms of quality mm-hmm. Paul? Yeah I mean I, I would agree with with both. Uh,
3: I I never found you know I'm a story guy and I never found his stories that great but the way he wrote them was I mean snowbug is it's about conjuring a demon and it the story it, uh, the, the denouement is, is is no big deal. But Snowbug, as a character, this one-inch little grouchy demon, is just it's just fun to read. And so in, in, in a lot of his stories, I find it is, it's the journey, you know, not the destination. Um, and I, But I think as an editor, though, he, you know, there was definitely a an FNSF story. And he set, he set, he said a high bar. And um, I never, you know, he he was gone before I ever, you know, wrote my first word. So I never submitted to him. But um, I think SNF uh, F and SF maintained that high bar. Um, that was one of the, the the magazines I found hardest to crack. You know, I finally did sell a story to Ed, but it was after many, many, many rejections. Um, so th- it, it has always been like, you know, one of the high watermarks of, of, of the, the genre of magazines. And, and, and I think he set that bar. It, it was definitely a different type of story. I used to buy the best of S F anthologies every year when they came out and they it had great, great stories in there.
1: All right. So let's get into the magazine. Um It, it took them several years to get it going. Um The, uh, First letter of agreement was signed in August 1946 where they like full on got to publish. We already mentioned that it was originally just called the magazine of fantasy. um, That it was originally pitched to the publishers of Ellery Queen that they were going to be the, sci-fi fantasy version of El- Ellery Queen. Um, they had to write a series of letters, M- McComas and voucher, to big names in the genre in order to build up uh, stories during those years. So they had those years to try and sell their idea of what they were doing. Um, and thankfully, because we had this book, The Eureka Years, which has the history uh, the beginning of it, um, we got so many letters and details for, for how the magazine was formed. And there's a whole section where you can just see the letters back and forth to the publishers. Um, and uh, my favorite that shows you um, kind of the inside baseball of this is the letter when they first discuss whether they're going to use sex or not in the magazine. Um, and uh McComas writes, um, uh, the commercial success of the Avon fantasy reader, their approach on this has been, as you've probably gathered, strictly deceptive hocus pocus. An occasional story has a sex slant of somewhat slavering and obvious pulp kind, but even, but even that never remotely lives up to the cover. We're all for, and then it, I, I'm skipping a bit, we're all for sex where it is natural and well-integrated part of the fantasy story. We'd like to feel our editorial standards in that respect would be far more liberal than those, say, of Street and Smith, and we're doubtful we'll go hunting for it. Um, But I I really liked that they were hashing this out in letters, you know, and talking about that, and it shows kind of, um, you know, how they were comparing themselves to other pulps. Um, But this was not a kid's magazine, and that was really important um that this was uh adult, not sexual, they weren't hunting for it, but it was adult science fiction um in that regard. And I think that that this in a weird way uh signals that they were they were writing for adults. So I you know, I don't know, I just thought that was important. Does anybody have any anything uh they want to add about that aspect of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction that that it was written for adults? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I think one sure
0: thing that's a... oh, sorry go ahead, go ahead Gordon no you go ahead I was going to say one of the things that struck me I, I was I was not old enough to buy them when they came out no but I'd, I'd buy used magazines and and the, the covers of uh FNSF always struck me as being uh more respectable I mean the, the, you know they that have um astronaut Bonestell astronomical paintings and this sort of thing but uh, no, no slavering monsters and none of the half undressed women that you'd expect from thrilling wonder stories at the same period. So it, it looked on the newsstand as a more mature magazine.
1: Yeah, and um, so early on they had to use their own stories, just like the Futurians did. Um, Keep going. Yeah, so they um, they had to use a lot of their own stories, just like the Futurians did, and in that sense, they they were um, a little embarrassed that they had to do this early on, and they, they acknowledged this, um, but they specifically um, in fact, uh, Boucher did say, we did use a story of mine in number one, A, because it was hard to line up contents for that first issue, and B, there wasn't at the time a comparable market for it. Um, so You know, they, they definitely were, were using their own stuff, but they also were aware very early on that they were making names in the field. Um, and there's a funny part where Tony says, I know some, some writers are complaining that we're not paying enough, but every writer working for every magazine (laughs) thinks they're not getting paid enough. Um, we're no different. Um, So I thought that was some some interesting, fun things that were going on there. And then they also, they knew that they were a secondary market for Bradbury, for example, that Bradbury would get first cuts. But one of the great things in Eureka years is that you get to see the letters that that they shared with the authors, Theodore Sturgeon, Philip K. Dick, and Ray Bradbury. And one of the most important ones to me is Bradbury because they radically changed Bradbury's story, right? And especially about Lovecraft. Yeah. And um, we'll get specifically to that story in a second. But they were not afraid to, even the biggest names in the field, Boucher and McComas were not afraid to step in and be editors. And I I wonder if we could talk about the importance of of their editorial touch. Um, Starting with Gary, Um, what do you think was the importance of their editorial touch?
0: Uh, one of the things I don't know uh, is how much editing they did. Uh, obviously, they did fairly uh, extensive editing on major names in the field. You mentioned Bradbury, but they also were publishing stories by uh, by, by C.S. Lewis or, or Shirley Jackson or, or even Borges. I wonder how much editing they would do on uh, on some of those stories because those were those were basically figures that they brought into the field. And uh, the I think they were publishing the C.S. Lewis story. Uh, before the Narnia books ever appeared, so he was being introduced to American audiences just like Borges were. So I don't know. Were they were, did they treat sort of mainstream authors that they were bringing into the genre one way, and then genre authors another way? Were they trying to make them all? Were they trying to erase these boundaries? I just don't know enough about their editorial practice to know if that was the intention. Very interesting that there might be two standards. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, they certainly weren't afraid to, um, work with Ray Bradbury on it. They had four, like, if you look in the book, there's like four major points in the story. The story is called the exiles and it has a bunch of major literary figures and, um, that are, are in the story. And they, they straight up tell them like, don't use this author, use this one, mm-hmm. um, and And they radically changed the story, and this is a story that I remember reading back in the day and Here's the thing that I thought was interesting is because um it it shows like the role of the editor where you might not when you're reading it in a collection years later have you don't have any idea how the story was affected by where it was originally published and uh you know Ray was fine the well, editor will do that i mean that's uh
3: as part of it you say you know. If you'd gone this way with the story, I might have bought it, but you went this way, so I'm not interested. But if you want to go and do it that way, take that turn instead of this turn, you know, I'd like to see it again. And, and you know, that that, uh, um, that can really turn a mediocre story into a great story.
1: Well, McComas and Boucher were doing a radical thing, too, in the sense that they were sending stories back to the authors. Um, Campbell... Uh, would usually just fix it himself or one of the people in his office, he would say, we'll buy your story, but we're going to do this and we're going to make this change. And um, and so one of the letters, Ray Bradbury writes back and he says, he's basically very appreciative, like, hey, um, you know, I, I, I'm very happy to make these changes, you know, and and uh, I thought that was that was cool. And in the follow-up letter that the, the, they do... They make um a b the a and b points um and make radical changes a second time you know um and and you've gotta think Ray Bradbury is publishing in in the saturday evening post and and you know it, I think he's on that level where where um i don't know anyways, I thought that was interesting but that that he was you know not not they were not afraid
2: to um you know. So Matt, I don't know that
1: Bradbury was,
2: was a giant name in the field at that stage. That was well before Fahrenheit 451. Okay, that may be true. He, I mean, he was, if you look at the, go back to the early issues and see the header notes for the, the Martian stories that FNSF did run, they're appreciative of, of Bradbury, but I don't think they, they're saying, we have a story by one of the greatest writers of our day, and they're saying, we're, we're glad to have a Bradbury story. He's, I'm trying to think of a, he was not, you know, elevated to the peak at that point. Mm-hmm. And I just discovered, you know, when after um, Boucher died, <coughs> McComas edited two volumes of sort of a tribute anthologies, one one mystery, one science fiction, uh, crimes and misfortunes and special wonders. And I was just reading these yesterday and discovered that Boucher and McComas, or maybe just Boucher, had wanted to buy Bradbury's story, The Fire Balloons, and got shot down by the New York office that felt it was too risky, they didn't like the religious stuff going on in there, and they bounced it over uh, Boucher's objections. And Bradbury says so in his introduction and says, you know, posthumously, I, tr- I dedicate the story now to, to Boucher, who should have been the editor for the story.
1: Mm. Yeah, which is showing respect that he he appreciated his input um, even then. Um, yeah, and, and I think um, just one thing you had that that issue about the sex
3: in the, and I just I just happened to dig these out. I had them. This is the kind of covers. <laughs> yeah, they had to contend with that. Uh, this was their competition, and. Um, <laughs> I always like this one. It's the, uh, the tower of torture and sin by Robert E. Howard. I doubt that was his, uh, his title,
1: but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. And they were definitely contending with that for sure. Um, there's also a really great quote in, um, Eureka years from a letter one of the great things in the Eureka years is the reject there's a whole section of rejection letters. Um, and they're very thoughtful and they, um, they, they do a really good job of, um, showing like what they were looking for in, in science fiction based on these rejections. And I love, um, one of the letters says, um, That He's talking about this story that's kind of a cops and robbers story set in space. And he says, we want something fresher, a little different, a new scientific idea, a new plot twist, a new imaginative concept, anything that isn't simple heck. As a sample of the highly varied kinds of science fiction that appeal to us, see Ted Sturgeon's Hercule in our first issue or Chris Neville's Every Work into Judgment in our second. And then he also uses the Judith Merrill story. But then he, the key at the end of the letter, he says, "We hope we shall hear from you again with something more distinctive, and possibly including yourself, echoing little green men whom we like." <laughs> um, and that was one of my favorite of the rejection letters. But there's several, and there's some that are just down to formatting. But these rejection letters are just golden because they really show you know i love that that what he says in there um bring something new something distinctive like like they're definitely they they were looking for they weren't looking for space opera and you weren't going to get space opera in a traditional sense in their magazine and that was really cool and that is one of the reasons why they were able to discover names like Phil K. Dick, who, of course, we'll get to because he's the,
2: the man of the hour here. Um, but... Uh, there was a well-known saying among the writers of the period, I think Phil Klass told me, that Anthony Boucher could write a rejection letter that made you feel like you'd been accepted, and Horace Gold <laughs> could write an acceptance letter that made you feel like you'd been rejected. <laughs> right. Uh, well, yeah, it would be interesting just to see
1: if all these letters could be compiled to their own book. I'm sure it's probably already happened. I just don't know. It happened. Yeah, that would be a great, that would be a great read, especially if you get the big names, because um, I think it's important for, that's one thing that young writers who nowadays, who, who like way too easily self-publish and I'm a huge believer in the gatekeepers. Right. Um, if I have, you're the last one. Yeah. No, I am the last one. I definitely believe in it. Um, and, uh, you know, rejection is such a huge part of, of being a writer. You have to be able to take rejection. Even when you're published, I mean, Paul, you know, even like with a series like Repairman Jack where you've had, um, I don't know, 30 books at this point of Repairman Jack, there's people who still don't like them and eventually you're still going to go onto Amazon and see somebody say, I can't stand these books. You know, even though they have legions of fans, including this guy. Um, but that's well, part of
3: everybody.
1: I mean, it just... Yeah. And
3: you can't take it personally. I mean, that, that's their opinion. Yeah, you know, so, that's it. Um, but, you know, I... Um, on Facebook, I, I put a whole pile of my rejection slips together.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: And page after page of them, I, I, you know, I, I, I put up and, um, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. You got to have a thick skin. You got to be able to take rejection. Um, it's, uh, and they were all pre-printed. I, I, never, until Campbell finally rejected one of my stories and told me why I had never had an ounce of feedback from anybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you do get that feedback, that's the, um, yeah, that's worth so much, and it's clear that they were interested in fostering a, the community, and they had that community aspect. Um, with and that might go back to the Manana Society when mm-hmm. you think about it. And uh, Boucher ran a writers group for many years in the Bay Area, which had not just Philip K. Dick, but Marion Marion Zimmer Bradley and some other names who came out of his writers group in the Bay Area. Um, and so maybe um, any last thoughts on on those early years of, of the before we transitioned into Philip K. Dick, because I, I think that those they only, they only ran the magazine for those five years, but those were formative, intensely productive five years that McComas and Boucher set the standard. And much like a, a the director who directs the pilot episode of a TV series, they set the tone that everything goes for with. So I just want to talk about have, get everyone's input on those first five years. Gary, um, how what's the effect today of those first five years of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction on the genre?
0: I I always tend to think of the history of the genre as being a. Cr- <laughs> accumulative rather than, than, than serial. And by that, I mean this. If you look at the first five years of Campbell's Editorship of Astounding, 37 to 42, it, it redefined the field in a very particular way. And I guess that when you mentioned the five years of, of, of uh, Boucher and McComas, redefined the field in, 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 a, in a different way, but didn't replace Astounding. What's interesting is that Astounding and Galaxy and FNSF were doing separate things at the same time. And each of those traditions has kind of succeeded, I mean, in really oversimplified terms, you know astounding was retreating more and more into hard s f uh, galaxy was becoming more and more social and satirical science fiction, and that left f and s f to be kind of the literary arm of the of the field, and that that arm is still there. I mean there are writers that uh, probably would have abandoned science fiction if they hadn 't had that market available.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and let's go to Gordon last because you are carrying the torch. Um, <laughs> Paul, um, do you feel that this, I feel that the, those five years helped create the new wave of science fiction, your spin reds, your Le Guin's, your, um, your Ellison's. I really feel like the, the birth of that was, was this the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. I don't know. I mean, how do you feel those five years propelled the genre? Well, <clears throat> I think they,
3: 50s, sci, 50s science fiction is, I, I think that that's the, the best decade. I really do. Um, there is so much good, good stuff being put out. Um, and just go back to the, to the Ballantyne um, anthologies and collections where the, they, 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 they sort of distill the essence and the stories are just fabulous, and I think um, FNSF had a had a big, oh, a big voice in that because I think Campbell and, and, and Analog were were just on a plateau, and I think fantasy and science fiction gave writers permission to do something different, to to push the boundaries a little, not just in the way of science. But there also the fact that the, the word fantasy was there. And and you didn't have to be science fiction. You could be fantasy. And that um I think just gave much more variety and and and, and the different flavors that I don't think you would have seen without that word fantasy there.
1: Mm. Which is interesting because that's where it started. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, Gordon, you're carrying the torch now. So um, you must think about those first five years in a lot of your decisions during those 18 years when you were running the magazine and, and you know, or editing the magazine and now, like, overseeing it. You you must always think about those first five years as, as the foundation, correct? Or- uh,
2: not, not on a regular basis, but, I'm, you know, it's the environment. It's certainly... Like you said, with the with sitcoms, you know, it established the Bible for the for the show for the rest of the duration. Um, and I think Gary's right that FNSF established itself as saying it's okay to be literary and write genre fiction. You know, and, you know, FNSF welcomed Shirley Jackson stories. You know, right. Barry Malzberg likes to say that if FNSF had been around, Shirley Jackson could have sold them the. Um, the lottery, lottery and it wouldn't have made the same splash as it made in the New Yorker. And I think he's got a point there. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that Paul is just sort of leaning towards is that, isn't it that F and SF created a magazine for fantasy. There was the Avon fantasy reader. There was weird tales, but it said fantasy and science fiction one under one cover. You don't have to define whether it's SF or fantasy. And I think that was a big, big, um, you know, cornerstone of the magazine and remains so to this day that, you know, we could publish a Michael Shea story. We ran a Ted Chang story about 13 years ago and it wound up in the year's best science fiction and in the year's best fantasy. And I remember thinking, you know, they both write, you know, I don't particularly care on one level, you know, in an academic sense, but, you know, in the 50s, you could not have had that. It was either science fiction or fantasy.
0: You didn't I think a, a, good exa- a good way to illustrate that would be uh, Campbell himself, because when he had so many of his writers submitting fantasy stories, right. which he could not tolerate, he created a separate fantasy magazine unknown, yeah. just to segregate the genres.
1: Right. Mm. Well, and, and so, and I think to this day, I mean, that's one of the lasting things about, The magazine of fantasy and science fiction is that it it does carry forward the tradition of being like the literary the literary arm you know um and uh it's the um you know i like for me for fiction i haven't cracked uh f f and sf yet but it's the only thing that i've submitted to like pretty much ever where i've been nervous about it (laughs) you know like I don't care everything else. I don't care whether I get rejected or whatever. Um, uh, That and being edited in the workshop by Doug Winter, just because it's Doug Winter, uh, Paul knows (laughs) um, Doug Winter is one of the uh, most intense editors you'll you'll ever face, and doing it face-to-face at the Borderlands workshop is
0: still one of the most intense things
1: that I've ever experienced. Um, So those are the only two times I've been nervous. But I think that that speaks to the, um, the quality and the respect that the magazine has, you know, and, and I appreciate that. And I think that you guys do um, uh, Boucher and McComas um, proud uh, all the time. So um, on that regard, so let's move into the new wave. And specifically the reason why we do this podcast and, and we started this podcast specifically just as, a bunch of friends wanting to have fun reading all of Philip K Dick's works from beginning to end. And at the beginning, it was just, we're going to read Philip K Dick's work in order and we're going to read and review them once a month, like a book club. And at the beginning, my only intention was to learn more about Philip K Dick as, as an author. And I had, I did not, I, It has grown in the mission that I want to take on the role of scholar of the genre uh, because I believe that the fifties and sixties are so important. But what's the reason I go back into this is because what kept happening early in the podcast is we had this long-running joke where we'd say, Shout out to Tony, shout out to Tony Boucher, because whenever I'd research the solar lottery or the adjustment team or Um, total recall is that this input from Tony Boucher continued to show up and we kept bringing up his name. And that's one of the reasons why we needed to do this. And so in the book of essays that Philip K. Dick did, um, about, um, you know, this is just a book of essays of various topics, but he talks a lot about Boucher in here. And he said, Anthony Boucher, the most dearly loved and equally important person in science fiction, had a program of vocal music on a local radio show. Due to my interest in classical music, I listened to the program. I got to meet him. He came to the record store in which I worked. We had a long talk, and I discovered that a person could not only be mature, but mature and educated and still enjoy science fiction. Tony Boucher entered my life and in doing so had determined its whole basic direction. Um, so I want to unpack that for a minute. Um, if Tony Boucher wasn't doing his Golden Voices opera show, and he wasn't a person that, whose name he automatically re- recognized when he came into the record shop and had these conversations, you know, there's these moments with Philip K. Dick's life. It's the moments where he talked to A.E. Von Vogt about writing novels um, versus science versus short stories that are key. Um, we know that Von Vogt was Dick's favorite writer when he was a kid, but at this point when he was working in the record store, he had told himself, Von Vogt is kid stuff. I'm not reading that anymore, right? And Tony Boucher coming in, and being this mature voice. I'm sure he told him about the minyana Society, because this, this is after that. But he also invited him to this writer's group. And, you know, I say all this because I want our listeners uh, and viewers to know that this is the level that Tony Boucher, we would not be sitting here, we would not be thinking about Philip K. Dick as a writer 50 years later without Tony Boucher going in And talking to him as a patron at this record store and how important that your influence as a steward of the genre can sometimes be just being a fan or a friend. And I wonder what you guys think about this influence that Tony Boucher had on the, on the person of Philip K Dick and that role that editors, writers and authors have just, on that personal one-to-one level. It doesn't have to be Phil K. Dick, but that one-to-one level of how we communicate the genre. Gordon, would you like to start? Sure. Well,
2: there's so many places where I could start. <clears throat> you know, from, I see a lot of it from Boucher's perspective in that he was trying to build a you know, a cadre of writers out on the West Coast. You know, as I said, he couldn't always access the New York writers. So he was hosting workshops. He was trying to get writers together. He, I think that's when he started the uh, annual poker game, or I mean, weekly mm-hmm. or monthly poker game. Paul Anderson and um, and McComas and I think Stuart Palmer maybe. Um, but he Ray was Nelson
1: constantly was very doing very well in
2: that too. What? Ray Nelson,
1: um, who wrote the story that Day Live* was based on, and oh, right, yeah.
2: He, he wasn't part of that poker game though, but but yeah. It, Boucher was constantly trying to bring in writers. And uh, as I may have told you previously, but I, it should be said in this podcast, um, that same writing workshop that Boucher invited uh, invited PKD to, he also got Ron Goulart went to. And I think Ron was the one who, to- I know Ron told me this. I think Ron said he was so young, his mother drove him to Boucher's house I wanted to check it out before dropping her son off at this place just to make sure it was on the up and up. <laughs> and I know Ron, Ron said he and Phil were sort of, were competing to see who could sell to FNSF first and get Boucher to buy something. And Ron won with a little joke piece. It was barely even a story. It was, I think it was called letters to the editor. Um, I think Phil's story, Ruge was the first actual sale. I think Phil sold the story first, but Ron had the sale first. Um, But as I said, all this was, I, I don't want to say Boucher had a grand scheme, but this was, this was how he operated all the time. He was immensely interested in dozens of different things and constantly had societies and clubs and organizations going around, all of them. And he loved bringing these people together. I think in his ideal world, he would have had, a Bay Area Renaissance to rival the Harlem Renaissance just out of his interests of opera and science fiction mm-hmm. and fantasy and, and poker and basketball and football. It's just how Boucher operated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it certainly resonated with the writers. And as we've said, he treated the writers so well, they all wanted to do right by him. When you go through those memorial volumes, writer after writer says, I didn't always sell Tony my best, but I always tried to. And when I didn't get there, he told me in no uncertain terms, but he was always so nice about it. (laughs) And I I think it left an impression on dozens of writers. Judy Merrill said years later that Boucher was the internal editor she always wrote for when she was writing something. She wanted to write to Boucher's level. You know, if she made him happy. She had done good. And I know a lot of writers looked up to Boucher that way. Um, I think Dick Mac- Matheson, I know his first sale was to FNSF, and I think he looked at Boucher in the same way. You know, if I can sell to Tony, then I've done I've done it right.
1: Yeah, his first sale was to, um, to Boucher. Yeah, what a man of woman. Yeah, and just think Just think about that alone for the impact that it's had on Hollywood that Richard Matheson and Philip K. Dick both got their star with this magazine. Just think about how many movies that's tied to with a writer who started with that editor, you know, just, just those two alone. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Um, Gary, what do you think about the importance of, of, um, of uh, that human connection that Poucher had? with
0: I don't really know uh, that much. certainly not as much as Gordon does about, uh, about the connection. I've, uh, we're now dealing with, Uh, only an older generation of writers that remembers actually selling to to, to Voucher and McComas himself. I will say that uh, the way you described that scene in the record store now has me visualizing Philip K. Dick as John Cusack in High Fidelity um, (laughs) with with somebody, I don't know, wandering in to, uh, uh, to explain to him about science fiction. I guess my sense is that he was perceived as a literary editor rather than a pulp editor. And I think that's a distinction that maybe didn't even exist in the genre prior to that. Um, there, was, there was a clear hierarchy in the 40s, and you, everybody tried to sell to astounding, and, and then you'd end up with thrilling wonder stories, or at the very bottom of the pile, you'd end up in one of those things that Fred Poe was editing, like astonishing stories. But with, um, with FNSF, I think what the, the quotations that, uh, that Gordon was just sharing with us indicate that now there was a sense you wanted to write the best fiction you could, not the most innovative idea. You didn't have to come up with bizarre schemes uh, like um, like the Shaver Mysteries or Dianetics and that sort of thing. Actually, one of the things that I thought was fascinating in uh, The Complete voucher, this thing that Nestor Press put together, was a poem he wrote, which is a parody of um, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan called The Model of a Modern Science Fiction Editor, in which he lays out a Very lot of... In, in in very funny way, it kind of uh, lays out his editorial philosophy and and gets a couple of shots in at uh, at the Shaver mystery or uh, Velikovsky and all the stuff that was uh, kind of dominating the other magazines when all he was trying to do was publish good fiction.
1: Yeah, that's in uh, Eureka years too. That, that oh, it is, It's great. Yeah, it's really good. Um, from what is there's a line uh, in it. Um, Hold on, I have it here. It's um, from Plato down to Bradbury in order categorical, (laughs) you know. Um, But it's uh, yeah, it shows a really, it's very clever, you know. Um, But uh, voucher, yeah, I mean, it's that personal connection. I mean, like, I think uh, I think it's important to all of us is we have those moments. Um, Paul, I wonder. um, I mean, you had those moments too, and you're. Early in in your time too, in your first magazine sales, but I'm sure it was going to conventions as well and meeting people um, that propelled. Yeah, I.
3: Yeah, Campbell. Campbell was the first to give me anything constructive, Um, but I never met him. Um, I was going to be in New York one summer, and he said, "Stop by the office," you know. And I had other things to do, and I I just never got there. And a month later, he was dead. so that's a lesson right there. You know, um, don't put things off too long. Um, but you know, I, I don't know anything about Boucher uh, except his work. Um, and, and what I, I, I gleaned from, from writing, you know, to, to be able to write that introduction. Um, but, but I know what was in his magazine because, I, I, as I said, I bought the annual thing all the time and I bought the magazine. Uh, but it was after he had he had left it um and you know the the the, just the sheer variety of what he published and and the and the and the quality i mean there really wasn't i couldn't say that there was an fnsf story because i mean you could absolutely say there was an uh, an astounding story and you could you could say there was a galaxy story but There was such variety. I mean when you when you think uh, they would do science fiction and then they would do Born of man and woman. I mean That's that's I think that's one of the most moving stories that um, uh, Madison ever did and I can't believe it was his first sale for that for them. I didn't know that
1: Um, Yeah,
3: just just an unforgettable story and what it, 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 that could be in the year's best horror as well as, as science fiction. I, I,
0: it's also uh, kind of an experimental story, which for the early fifties would have been, you know, the, the voice is just radically disturbing and that might've been one of the things to look forward to the new wave.
1: Yeah. Which Matheson doesn't get credit for because he's not, he's, I don't know. He's almost never lumped in with it, with that group, but, um, which I'm not quite sure why, but, uh, Maybe because he didn't write as intensely science fiction. It's more fantasy and horror that, that Matheson wrote. But, you know, that story definitely plays a role in the, in the evolution. I agree with you.
2: Gary. I got to give you guys the scoop here. The reason I keep turning around, these are file cabinets that go back to 1949. Wow. They contain a card for every, every person who's contributed to Gretz SF. You know, when, when we buy something, we write down the date, how much we paid, the length. And here's Richard Matheson's card. See if that shows up. <laughs> Whoa. Wow. And here, here's the Phil Dick card. Wow. So you can see Matheson, Born a Man and Woman, <laughs> was the 13th story that FNSF bought, three pages long, accepted January 27th, 1950. That's Phil Dick's wow. Ruge was number 182 five pages long, November 15th,
1: 1951. Wow. And we had the letters in Eureka years for both of those.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is great. Um, Wow, Gordon, you brought it. Uh, (laughs) That might, uh, that that goes up there with Betsy Woolheim pulling out the letter from Lovecraft to Don, uh, (laughs) in our episode, which was, uh, and she also brought out the print of the first, use of the word science fiction um, on the cover of the pocketbooks of science fiction. Ah. So, ah, making moments. All right. Um, (laughs) That is really cool, Gordon. Um, And you guys have that complete history all the way back, huh? All the way to 1949. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. Um, Yeah. It's amazing to think too, you know, and and, um, uh, PKD talks. you I'll dig out your card. (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: oh, Paul's? <laughs> <balls>? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should do that. Um, well, we, uh, yeah, he also said on that in regards to Ruge um, in his essays, PKD said, um, Tony had a weekly class on writing, which he conducted at his home. I decided to go. Tony dutifully read my first painful efforts. The literary ones he did not respond to, respond to, but my surprise, he seemed quite taken with a short fantasy of which I had done. He seemed to be weighing in on it almost in terms of its economic work. This <laughs> caused me to begin writing more fantasy stories and then science fiction. In October of 1951, when I was 21 years old, uh, he was actually 22, the, uh, the editor corrected that, I sold my first story, A Tiny Fantasy, to S... F and S F magazine that Boucher edited. I began to mail off stories to other science fiction magazines and lo and behold, planet stories bought a story of mine. Um, So yeah, that's the story from, from Phil's perspective. Um, And he continued to get Boucher's feedback, even on the stories that he did not publish with him. We saw that. um, And um, Boucher, was not the one that of course got him excited about writing novels. That was meeting Von Vogt at a convention. And I know we told this story on the last podcast that Gary was on. Cause I always picture it Von Vogt or like Dick wearing like a newspaper hat and Von Vogt being like, you're never going to make it writing them short stories kid. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that, you know, again, for us, as the Dickheads podcast, we like to look at those steps and how important they are for PKD becoming the author that, that we know of, you know, that we know of. And um, I don't know any more details, Gordon, on those uh, on those um, those uh, voucher parties,
2: because to me, that,
1: that stuff's gold.
2: <laughs> um, Sorry, I just dropped it. As a matter of fact, there is. Do you have any idea what the original title of the short, happy life of the Brown Oxford was? No. Left shoe, my foot. (laughs) Um, Well, we talk a lot
1: about Dick had some pretty bad titles uh, before he... uh, uh, That's a running joke on the podcast is like, oh, geez, what did he want to call this? Um,
2: I assure you it's not just Dick. The Alfred Bester card is filled with title crossouts. (laughs) Uh, Bester himself even said, the first two stories he sold to FNSF Get the titles reversed. One of them should have been on the other one, and vice versa. And you can see they, you know they had to fix it. Yeah, I had a friend who had
1: a short story published with the word "submission" added to it, and he was like, "That's a sign. I never submit to that editor again." <laughs> um, <laughs> those things happen, but um, but that's funny. Uh, on the so on the cards, you get all like the the progression of everything that went through
2: in the editing process.
1: <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> the cards
2: is supposed to be done once you bought, you bought the story. But a lot of times the title changes between buying the story and publishing it. I certainly had plenty of those during my you time. You need as editor.
0: to scan all of those Gordon before <laughs> something <they're laughs> on fire or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It seriously. Yeah. First we have to scan all the contracts. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: That's great. That's amazing. So, uh, more, the, the Any other stories on those those uh, meetings or those weeks? Like I know um, that, uh, for example, um, Lies Inc., which was originally The Unteleported Man, I know that that was a novel that the group had spun the concept together before yeah. Philip K. Dick sold it. I know that happened at a voucher house meeting, and that's one of the reasons why he tried to bring Ray Nelson in as a co-writer, because he felt that Nelson had a lot of input into that story like at the meetings do you, I, I I don't know I just want to let you fly with those if you have any of those none, none that I remember okay yeah well I just I, that the Unteleported man which which had that crazy publishing history where it started as a novella and then he tried to expand it and he wrote a totally different story all came from from those from those house from those bachelor house meetings so all right. Well, um, I don't Like, so Boucher's death, of course had a major impact on PKD. Um, he, the two editors, of course he gives the most credit to are Wolheim and Boucher, but you know, Molheim, of course, lived Dick, but, um, when Boucher died in 68, it was at a very rough time for PKD already. Um, as you know, we we have a long running joke on the podcast about consulting PKD divorcepedia because we we had to kind of keep track of who he was divorcing at any given time, and he was in the throes of his fourth divorce um, when Boucher's death happened. And there is an argument to be made that the junkie years that inspired Scanner Darkly would not. Have happened mm-hmm. if Boucher's death hadn't come at that time, because Boucher was like a rock for PKD. He was one of those. He had one other. He had a religious figure, a guy that he knew from a church that he that he thought was as important as Boucher in his life. But Boucher was so important to his life that he kind of spiraled out a little bit when Boucher died. And I'm wondering. I know this is hard to say because we've had so many deaths in the field that we have no idea what impact their death had on the field, but we know it had a massive impact on Phil K. Dick and that his masterpiece in scanner darkly may not have happened without it. Um, I'm wondering just the effect of losing Boucher It's, it's, it's such a prime era. Like I wonder if, you know, what impact do you think that had, um, Gary, uh, to start us off? Um.
0: I, he, I think people were shocked at how young he was, uh, certainly, but, um, but he, also the fact that he'd been away from um, FNSF for, what, like a decade uh, when he died. I recall the um, uh, obituaries at the time focusing largely on his mystery career, on his, and on, on the influence. We haven't talked about this much, but the influence he had as a reviewer, uh, both of mysteries and science fiction so i i I think he was he was considered a, a, a senior citizen in the field, a giant in the field, but one who hadn't been active from for for a while at the time and the writers who sold to him were i think understandably distressed by it but uh, as I said, they hadn't been selling to him for years, so it was um, um, less dramatic than it would have been had he had this happened at the height of his editorship well
1: and to ha- he has a convention named after him in the mystery field
0: so exactly.
2: Right,
1: yeah, I'm sure the mystery readers and listeners have already turned us off at this point because they're like, they're never going to talk about his mystery work. Uh, but uh, but his his contribution, to have a contribution like that in two different genres, right. incredible, right? Um, well, he helped
3: art, Mystery Writers of America. Exactly. And he reviewed for Ellery Queen um, mm-hmm. along with the San Francisco Chronicle and the Times. I mean, he was... Uh, but they were all mostly mysteries. So, I mean, he was, he was the mystery guy, uh, toward the end of his life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And you know, of course, those passions, um, in Rocket to the Morgue, he just as much as he writes about the history of the sci fi genre early in the book, he does, he come, he unpacks the history of the mystery genre er, early in Rocket to the Morgue as well, um, you know, and uh you know but yeah he was very young um to pass away at the time and and the the shock on on phil was what was was brutal but i think uh you know his we don't know if he would have came back to the sci-fi genre at any point he had a long way to go if he had lived to the the age of some of the other editors like your campbells and and, and and so I, I feel like he may have, you know, come back to the genre. We were, just, we were in a time where he had been away from it, you know. Gordon, mm-hmm. I mean, you guys, um, you're carrying his torch. So um, I wonder how much you guys think about the fact that he was so young um, when he died. I mean, was he still communicating with the people that took over the magazine after his after his time, like up until his death, or did he just feel like that was something he started and he
2: was ready to move on? I can't remember where I saw this, but I know I've seen <laughs> a, a statement from um, from Boucher circa 1958 saying, oh, I could never edit FNSF again, or edit. I could never edit a magazine again. Uh, my shrink wouldn't, wouldn't allow me. <laughs> yeah. You know, Somewhere he made it clear that it was just too much of a strain mentally to be trying to run a magazine the way he was running it in the 50s. Um, When he died, Ed Furman had only recently taken over as editor. I think Ed would have been doing it three years at that point, give or take a year. Mm -hmm. And of course, Ed was the son of Joe Furman, who was the magazine's original founding finance guy you know, one of the people running um, Mercury Press. <clears throat> so Ed was, had essentially gone into the family business. And I don't think that he was regularly <laughs> looking Tony Boucher for advice on how to edit the magazine at that point. Uh, but I, I can say, you know, the, on the memorial anthologies, just look going over the names of the people who were moved by Boucher's death to write a story. And these were all, all the proceeds from the books went to Sifwa, and mystery writers. Um, I don't think the writers themselves got paid anything for the stories. But you've got Asimov, Paul Anderson, Bradbury, Reginald Bretner, Fred Brown, Frederick Brown, John Brunner, Mildred Klingerman, Avram Davidson, Miriam Allen DeFord, Harlan Ellison, Gordy Dixon, Phil Farmer, Randall Garrett, Damon Knight, and on and on. Jack Vance, Bob Silverberg. Wow. he, Boucher was a, the only comparable thing I can think of from the last 30 years was when Terry Carr died in 86, was it 87? Oh. Somewhere, mm. somewhere in the mid 80s. And there was the same kind of outpouring from losing such a great editor so, so, you know, so much before his time, or dying so young. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of anything in recent years that's really been comparable. You know, in and, terms ter-
1: of field. and Terry Carr had a huge impact on PKD as well. He was mm-hmm. Don Walheim's right hand for a lot of, of Dick's publishing efforts. And there's a very funny story about when the Kraken Space was... Um, when Walheim sent a note saying that he wanted to change the title to the Kraken Space, Terry Carr ran down and said... Don, we can't call a book with a whorehouse in space, the crack in space. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't do that. And Wolheim was like, no, nah, nobody will think of that. <laughs> 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 like, uh, I remember David Hartwell
3: was my uh, editor for about 15 years. And I was pretty shocked when you know, he David, died. Yeah. Um, and he was... He, I think he's had a he's had a big impact on the field too. Uh, maybe I I I'd say maybe as much as Terry Carr. I mean when you consider the length of his his um and and the number of he even started certain, you know, timescape.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of
3: those lines were started by him. Um
1: David Hardwell for sure.
3: He would be, I think, comparable to Carr, but uh he didn't he wasn't one of those guys where he would have people over to his house, you know, a writer's group over to his house, at least not that I know of. Oh,
2: uh, he ran a magazine out of his house. That's where I worked for him. Yeah. New York Review of Science Fiction. We used to meet, go up to David's house once a month and spend a whole weekend up there, and put the magazine together. You know, Gordon, uh, um,
1: when I interviewed uh, um, John ordover he talked about that. That's how he got into editing Star Trek books because Hartwell yeah, was, was there. Yeah. Hartwell was the one that uh, said, uh, "This is the guy to do it. He knows Spock's blood type." But Hartwell
3: used to put some magazine together in Hartwell's apartment in in New York City, and I forget what what it was. It was a fan. Cosmos.
2: Yeah. Oh, pardon? Cosmos, but it only Cos- lasted four issues. Yeah,
1: yeah. Another, yeah. Another, another voice. who was a huge. It had a huge impact. Um, and, uh, yeah, when Ordover brought, brought up, um, him, I it couldn't help but bring up the fact that I knew he was in charge of the repairman jackbooks for years and, you know, yeah. you know, helping you out with those, Paul. And, and, uh, you know, and, and that's incredible editing work too, just because of how many, how you had different series coming together. <laughs> um,
3: so uh, well, was very good at seeing the, the, the bigger picture. I was always concentrating on the leaves of the tree and then he would say, you know, but something wrong with the shape of the tree, you know, and then we'd get we have these conversations and I, I'd say what he was talking about and I would fix it.
1: Oh that's amazing. All right. So um to to wrap this up, um I think you know, voucher and Walheim, uh the reason why we tied those two together it's there they had this huge impact, but but Boucher, um, I think, is definitely well. Both Bullheim and Boucher. The other thing is, is that even as somebody who's like well versed in the field and who has always loved old school science fiction, um, I didn't know their names before I started researching for this podcast, and now I think they're so important. And I want to. You know, like you were saying, Paul, in your introduction, I want to shake readers and say, like, hey, you know, know these people. I, I, it's important to me to know the historical steps that we take um, to get to where we are in the genre. And you know, as we move into, it's funny, D. Harlan Wilson, who's one, who's one of my favorite writers, and has been on the podcast, and the the introduction to his new edition of uh, Revelations by Barry Maltzberg. Uh, he puts forward this idea in the introduction that science fiction belongs to the 20th century, and I told him that I'm going to have him on the show to debate him on this <laughs> because I don't believe science fiction belongs to the 20th century. However, science fiction was born in the 20th century in a, in a very real way, and your Campbell's and your Heinleins are getting the attention with the astounding book did an amazing job, and Alec is, I'm so impressed by what he did, but the Wolheims and the Bouchers are so important to it and the editors are so important to to what they do and I think I want to close with everybody talking about their experience with editors and the power of editors and how they shaped and molded 20th century science fiction. I know that's a big scope to kind of go out with, but I, that that's where I want to start, Paul. How do you think editors defined twentieth-century science fiction? Oh,
3: I mean, there, there 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 was a progression of editors that. Um, I mean, you start with Gernsback, obviously, and um, and he he also helped um, you know, form science fiction fandom, which which there's that feedback with the fandom and, and the editors and the writers, um, that also molds it to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, I mean, Groszbach would come to, one of the early fandom uh, groups, I think they were scientists or something like that, like 1929, he would bring a writer over to the guy's house and, and they, you know, they would meet. And, um, and then he evolved into Campbell who wanted to make the future, you know, or look at you know, the future as some place where people lived. And I want to know about the people who live in that future, not how that future was made. And that, that changed the whole thrust. Those were the stories he was buying. And then you have, you, you graduate to Boucher, who, um, who took a more literary bent and the science became like secondarily important. And what was more important was the you know, story and character. And from there on, you know, it's, uh, then it really, then it really exploded, especially, you know, now, now we have, um, modern science fiction is, is, um, all over the place. Uh, I try to keep reading a little bit here and there. A lot of it's um, quite different from what I grew up with, quite different. Barry Malzberg and I had lunch the other day and, you know, <laughs> Barry, of course, is, um, he's not too saying he hates the, the, the latest, uh, science fiction. Um, but I, I, you know, I've read some good stuff, but, uh, he, he really hates it. And, um, it, we have some interesting conversations.
1: Yeah. We had a uh, Barry on the podcast. He was great. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm, I definitely believe Barry Maltzberg is an underrated 20th century, um, genius of science fiction um and i'm so glad that d harlan wilson is uh re re um, issuing his work i think it's very 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 important um especially i was so glad beyond apollo which we did a whole episode on i think is an absolute masterpiece um gary um, i know you believe in modern science fiction <laughs> yeah um a big fan of uh for example lavi tidar um and uh, how do you think science fiction of the 21st century is being still formed by the, the legacy of those early editors, including Tony Boucher?
0: Well, it's interesting. I just uh, not long ago wrote an essay on editors It was a, as an introduction to a, an anthology coming out this fall from Ellen Dadlow, which is an anthology drawn from her earlier anthologies. Um, <laughs> which says something, I guess, about, uh, about the in, in impact of editors. And I was talking a lot about Gernsback, about Campbell and that sort of thing, and about uh, editors who I think have not gotten as much credit uh, for things like the New Wave, like Seal Goldsmith of Amazing, who was publishing Ballard and, and Gene Wolfe and Le Guin when nobody else was. Um, but I think the thing that tells us more than anything else is that the Mystery Writers of America names its award the Edgar Of course, Edgar Allan Poe, classic mystery writer, inventor of the genre. There's no other genre that names its major award after an editor. And an editor whose career didn't last that long and who, as a writer, was frankly a disaster. But the science fiction field has, and so far, nobody has, as far as I know, suggested changing the name Hugo. Um, But by and large, no other field would have thought to name its major award after somebody who edited a pulp magazine.
1: Mm. Uh Gordon last thoughts on editors and then we'll uh wrap up with how
2: people can find, it, find y'all. Uh, sort of unfair to ask me, it's, you know, I'm of course going to say they're essential. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cuz you are an editor, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can pass on that one if you want. Um but uh Tony Boucher himself, uh what's your final thoughts on Tony Boucher that you want the want our listeners to know?
2: Well, I'll tell you. When I interviewed for the job of editing FNSF, I told Ed Furman I aspired to be an editor like Tony Boucher. and I don't know. I don't think that got me the job, but I don't think it cost me any points either. <laughs> um, you know, when I when I took over the magazine, he was the model that I looked to initially. You know, over time I've changed, and I found I'm actually more like Ed Furman than anyone else the SF. But that doesn't, you know, my absolute reverence for Anthony Boucher as an editor. You know, I aspired to write letters as good as the ones that you saw in the Eureka years. You know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: he he had a way of getting inside writers' minds that really was you know, is an uncommon skill, and any, you know any literary endeavor could use more of Anthony Bouchers it that way.
1: Yeah, he I think that quote that you brought up earlier about how he could write a rejection that made you feel like you were accepted. And um he you're right, he, he knew how to how to massage that writer brain, which is which is definitely a good skill for an editor to have. Um, all right, so uh wow guys, this is great. Um I think uh our listeners are really gonna dig this discussion about Tony Batcher. Uh, starting with Gary, um, Gary, tell everybody how they can find you and follow your work. Uh, your amazing Kood street podcast, uh, everything. Tell them what's up.
0: Um, the Kood street podcast, which we've been doing like 80 daily ones now for since the lockdown began and it's on my Facebook page, it's on Twitter, it's on iTunes. It's easy to find. And, uh, apart from that, I'm retired as an academic. So, um, the, um, The other thing I'm working on uh, is a series of monographs about uh, modern science fiction writers for the University of Illinois Press, one of which is up for Hugo this year, we're proud to say, Gwyneth Jones and Juliana Russ. And that's about it.
1: All right. Gordon, how can people find the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and the rest of your work?
2: (laughs) Well, there was a time you could go to any good bookstore and find it, but right now you can't go to any good bookstore, period. (laughs) Um, But we are... Still selling them through the mail. At, I'll give a plug. The website is FANDSF.com And you can buy single issues or subscriptions there. Awesome. And, Paul,
1: uh, what is the work you – what is coming out here soon? What was your last book? Tell them what's up.
3: Oh, um, boy, I got a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Um, the last book was The Last Christmas – Uh, a Repairman Jack novel. I'm doing them very sporadically now. Um, I have a a, sort of a horror-ish thing coming out next month called um, Signals, with a Z at the end. That's right. Um, And uh, Small Press is going to be doing a um, 50-year retrospective. April this year, it was 50 years ago, I sold my first story. And so they're gonna do 50 years of my uh, short fiction.
1: Wow and, great. Um,
3: and then I also have a book of my pastiches called Other Sandboxes coming out this year too.
1: So yeah I, have, I actually hadn't read last Christmas yet because I was saving it for I love plane reads. That's like my absolute favorite time to read and I was saving it for a flight. That of course, with the quarantine, got canceled. <laughs> because I love, um, I have read entire Repairman Jack books on flights, <laughs> and uh, it is my favorite way to experience Repairman Jack. So I was saving it, but I think I'm going to have to go ahead and read it. it must um, be a fast reader. Yeah, <laughs> I have a fast reader, but especially with Repairman Jack, uh, which was one of my all time favorite series. So, and I do want to put that out there to. Uh, to the dickheads that if you have not read repairman jack um you definitely uh as brian keen would say unfuck that um but uh uh i'm a big fan of all of your work the keep is one of my all time favorite horror novels as well and uh it's in my top 10 of horror novels of all time and uh that's that's uh To this day, one of the greatest uses of misdirection in fiction that I've ever read. And I use it all the time when when talking to other writers about the skill of misdirection. And that's The Keep by F. Paul Wilson. So um, on that note, uh, everybody, it was great to have you here to talk about uh, Philip K. Dick and Tony Boucher, but especially Tony Boucher. Let's get the word out about the guy and hope that people will read *Rocket to the Morgue. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and as always, listeners, keep it paranoid.